0: you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. We finished our study of 2 Corinthians two weeks ago, and last week we looked at Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 26 with our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this morning we look at John's account of the resurrection. We're going to look at the entirety of chapter 20, in which John gives us four scenes that describe for us not just the what of the resurrection, but the why of the resurrection. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we pray, O Lord, that you would open up your word to us. That as we study it, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. The resurrection is the crowning event. Of the gospel story. It is victory from the jaws of defeat and death. It shows the power of God to overcome sin and to redeem his people. Today, from the Gospel of John, we are going to see not just that Jesus could rise, not just that Jesus did rise, but that Jesus must rise. Jesus must rise because the Lord had decreed it. He must rise to fulfill the will of God for his people and for all of creation. The good news is that Jesus must rise for you and me. So, as we look at this 20th chapter of the Gospel of John, the first scene that we see appears in verses 1 through 10 we see that Jesus must rise to defeat death. Now, Each of the Gospel writers gives a slightly different account of this resurrection morning. There are no contradictions, but there are differing emphases in each of the Gospels. John gives us a description that's very typical of him. In verse 1, he writes that Mary came to the tomb while it was still dark. Matthew, for example, writes the same thing a bit differently. He says that she came toward the dawn. Mark says that she came very early. And Luke calls it early dawn. All of these describe the same period of time, but John describes it as dark for a reason. Throughout the Gospel of John, John draws a contrast between light and dark, between faith, and unbelief, between salvation and death. We see this right from the very outset in John chapter 1 and verse 4. He describes our Lord Jesus Christ by saying, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He is the true light which gives light to everyone. This is who Jesus is and so Mary comes to the tomb without Jesus as it were for her Jesus is gone he's died and with him hope is gone and I think according to John for her light is gone she's in the dark she's in confusion she does not have the belief in Jesus that she needs She comes with some other women, Mark tells us in his account, but they are still in shock. They have no idea what they're doing. As a matter of fact, Mark tells us that as they come to the tomb, they ask each other, what are we going to do? We have this ointment and spices, but how can we anoint our Lord Jesus' body? Because the stone's in the way. Who will roll the stone away for us? So they're trying to find something to do, but they don't know what to do. And they're not thinking straight. Mary can't believe Jesus is gone. That she is now alone. That hope is lost. This has been that kind of a year, hasn't it? Are you today in a bit of a fog because of all you've gone through this year? Has it been hard? Do you ever wonder if you will get back what you have lost? If so, then you can imagine Mary's mindset as she comes to this tomb. And then she comes and she sees that the stone is taken away. Now, we have to understand, Mary hasn't read the rest of the story. So for Mary, this is not good news. This is actually bad news. It's worse news. For Mary, it's gone from bad to worse. Now, not only has her Lord Jesus died, she doesn't even have the body of Jesus anymore. Because at this time, grave robbery was very common. Bandits would come and break into tombs and hope that there were precious things that they could steal. They would even steal the ointments and the cloths that bodies were wrapped in. And so Mary sees this and she fears the worst and she goes off and she runs to Peter and John. She doesn't know what to do. So she tells them the bad news. That's the context here. Bad news. What do we do next? And panic sets in. After all, what could be happening? Is this how you come here today? Do you have a heavy heart because your life is not what you hoped it would be? Are you just going through the motions with your life? You need to know that Jesus sees you just as Jesus saw them. We need to know that hope starts with Jesus, not with us. And so Peter and John come and they run to the tomb. They don't know what to expect. As I've said, panic has set in. They don't know what to do, so they dash off. And John arrives first. Now, we don't know whether John was younger than Peter. It's probable that he was. Or maybe he was just the better athlete. But in something that's so typical of both John and Peter, John comes and he arrives, but he can't bring himself to go into the tomb. He describes that for us in verse 5. He stoops to look in, and he sees the linen cloths lying there, but he doesn't go in. Perhaps his love for the Lord Jesus had so overwhelmed him that he couldn't bear to go in and see the body. You can imagine why the beloved disciple has been devastated by Jesus' death. Now, on the other hand, Peter comes in from behind. And so very typically, he goes right past John and into the tomb. Does not break at all. In verse 6, we see he goes into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths lying there. And he also sees the face cloth, which has been put off to the side and folded up. But he doesn't understand what this means. You see, they assumed that grave robbers had come. But grave robbers would never have taken the time to unwind the body. As a matter of fact, they would have taken the expensive linen cloths with them for resale. And they certainly wouldn't have taken the cloth around Jesus' head and neatly folded it up on the side as they're trying to rob a grave. So that can't be what's happened. But the challenge is, John tells us in verse 9 that they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because if they understood that scripture, their sorrow would have been much less upon the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. They would not have wept at the burial. They would have known for certain that Jesus would rise. They would have been waiting. They would have been standing outside the tomb. Mary wouldn't have had to come and get them. But they didn't understand that yet, John tells us. So what's going on here? Well, contrast what they see with what they would have seen in the incident with Lazarus. Lazarus came out from the grave Covered in cloths. Jesus has to order the men to unbind him because he is wrapped so tightly in cloths. But Lazarus had not risen from the dead. Lazarus had been raised by Jesus. And Lazarus would once again die. Not so the Lord Jesus Christ. He had defeated death, he had risen from death and from the grave and passed. Through the cloths and the ointment as much like he did so with the doors later described in this chapter. He had left these clues behind for his disciples. The cloths here, the folded headcloth. these are not accidents. These are signs of evidence. And so John sees and he believes. This is faith based on the evidence. John and Peter didn't understand the scripture yet, but they saw that Jesus had defeated death. They saw that the grave could not hold Jesus. Later, Peter will say exactly that in his sermon at the beginning of Acts. He says it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. There is no better news than that today. Death is the ultimate enemy. It claims rich and poor, good and bad. None of us escapes death. But here Jesus tells you that death is not final. It is not the end because he has defeated death. He's defeated it for you. Jesus must rise because death Must be defeated. Do you believe that this morning? John then transitions to a second scene. Which takes us down through verse 18. And this is fascinating. Even this transition. In verse 10 he tells us. Then the disciples went back to their home. Peter and John go home. They obviously don't share their belief. With Mary because she's left standing outside weeping. They don't go and tell the other disciples. Luke tells us that that happens later when Mary and the other women inform them. And Mary is outside this tomb weeping. We know from the other gospel accounts that there are or will be other women around her, but now John focuses on Mary. She is still devastated, lost, and alone. From her perspective, everything is lost. Jesus is dead. The body is gone. Peter and John have left. She is all alone. There's nothing worse in your trouble and sorrow than to be alone, is there? When you're young, what do you do when you're troubled? You go to your parents, you go to find comfort. You go to find hope and encouragement. Well, let me tell you a secret, young people. You do that when you're older, too. When you're troubled and sorrowful, you go to find others to encourage you, to help you, and to comfort you. And so the details of this account are meant to come to us and be a comfort to us. Mary looks into the tomb, we read in verse 12. And she sees two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. Now this is no consolation at all for her. It only serves to emphasize that Jesus is gone. For her, these two beings, men or angels, only serve to show the spot where Jesus should be and he's not. She doesn't necessarily want to engage with them. She doesn't think, oh, here's angels. they will be a help. Let me ask them questions. Oh, I'm so comforted by angels. All she can know is that Jesus is gone. She's not surprised at all. Can you imagine that? To see two people in a grave. Not to even ask, why are you there? She can only focus on Jesus. And when they ask her... All she's concerned about is, where have they taken my Jesus? She doesn't ask, how did you get into the grave? And so she turns and sees the gardener. And even that is not enough to shake her from her slumber. She doesn't recognize Jesus for who he is. And Jesus speaks to her generically. He says in verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? Now, this is not a rebuke. The word woman here is not a harsh word. You have to use your sanctified imagination and imagine the calmest, most gentle voice that tongue has ever produced as Jesus speaks to her. But she doesn't recognize him. Even his generic attempt to point her to himself doesn't work. He asks her, whom do you seek? But she just doesn't want to be left alone. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. I just need to find my Jesus, she says. Perhaps you're in this place this morning. You know your need. You know you're lost. You want to be found. You want to not be alone anymore. But where do you go? The world around you has no satisfying answers. Where is hope to be found? Well, then in verse 16, we see a marvelous change. Rather than speak generally to her, Jesus addresses her. It's only a word, but what a word. Mary, he says. He calls her by name, and that makes all the difference. Immediately she turns to him. The scene changes entirely. No longer is she lost. No longer is she alone. Her sorrow is transformed to joy. Rabboni, she yells. This can only be Jesus. She falls at his feet, grasping them, never wanting to let go. That's the meaning of this in verse 17. She doesn't fully understand what's going on but she's holding Jesus and she never wants to let Jesus out of her sight again. She wants the physical Jesus with her forever. Do you see what's happening here? It's only when Jesus speaks your name that you truly hear him. And no one says your name like Jesus. This is the way of the gospel. It takes a grip on you and will never let go when Jesus calls your name. Jesus had told us this earlier in the gospel of John, in the 11th chapter. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus does that right now. He is calling you now to trust him. The resurrection is not just an historical account. It tells us that Jesus is alive now. And that he is calling his people by name. He's calling you today. Will you believe? Will you be found by Jesus? Jesus must rise. Because he is calling his children. Then John brings us to a third scene in verse 19. Now understand what has happened so far. Paul and John have seen the evidence, but they haven't seen Jesus. Mary has seen Jesus and announced that to the disciples. And yet later on that evening, the disciples are still fearful and locked in a room. We read in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. We might say that while they believed, they're not changed yet. There is a transformation that will come. We know it from the rest of the story. These same disciples will go out into the public streets and preach that Jesus is the risen Messiah. They will not be stopped by the authorities. They are not embarrassed or afraid then. But now, they still are. John tells us that explicitly, and he would know he was there. They're all gathered together. They have to be talking about the events of the day, and yet they're still afraid of the Jews this also doesn't make any sense. If Jesus is risen, if Jesus has conquered death, if he has defeated those who sought to blot out his life, if he has that power, why would they be afraid of some politicians? But they are. They lock the doors. Now notice John tells us that's plural. So there's Likely an outer door that they lock and they go into an inner chamber and they lock that inner chamber so that everyone will be safe and they will not be surprised. You know what this is like. You do this in your own home. This is the job of the dad in the house, isn't it? The dad goes to the front door at night. If your home's anything like mine and he announces, I'm locking the door now. We're all staying inside. There's no more going out. The door's locked. The lights are off. Nobody comes in. Nobody goes out. That's their mentality here. And this makes no sense if Jesus has defeated death. It makes no sense if Jesus hasn't left them. But they still haven't come to grips with reality. And I think that's because you can only imagine how guilty they felt at this time. They had abandoned Jesus. They had boasted that they would die with Jesus, that they would never leave His side, and then, of course, they ran for their lives. If anyone ever had a guilty conscience, it was these disciples on this night. And I think this is often true of us. We fail to see Jesus and what He has done because we look at our own guilt instead. Our consciences accuse us And we know that we failed. We know that we're unworthy of God's blessing. But we cannot see past our own past. And that is when Jesus meets them. Just as he passed through the grave clothes, he passes through the locked doors. It's as if this gathering was designed to show the power of Jesus. And do you see what he says? Not once. twice peace be with you he tells them that their guilt is gone that their sins are forgiven he pronounces peace to them have you ever had a time when you needed someone to say it's going to be all right that helps when you hear that doesn't it But you know that the person who says that doesn't have the power to make everything all right. Jesus does. His pronouncement brings real peace. And as if to solidify that in their minds, Jesus says more. He has defeated death and the Father has sent him to do just that. Paul tells us that the resurrection is the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God with power. And so Jesus tells them now that they are forgiven, that they have peace, and now they are to be messengers of peace. Look at verse 21. Peace be with you, and as the Father sent me, even so I am now sending you. And when he had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He gives them the Holy Spirit and tells them to go and spread the gospel. Now, I will spare you the paragraphs upon paragraphs of theories upon conjectures upon more theories that commentators have about exactly what is happening in verse 22 with the Holy Spirit. Suffice it to say that this is not... The sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Otherwise, the disciples would not have remained fearful. They would not have remained without understanding. In Acts, when the Spirit comes upon them, they become different men. They are emboldened. They understand the connection between the Old Testament prophecies and Jesus' life and mission. They fear no man. They declare from the rooftops that Jesus is the Messiah. But not so here. What does it mean then? I think what it means is they have been given a mission. You remember what Jesus just said? So I am sending you. And that mission is to proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Now this is another passage that gives us trouble. In verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And when we first come to this passage, it comes to our mind as if Peter would look out in the crowd and say, You're forgiven. Not you. Not you. You. Not you. As if Peter or John or any of the disciples could make up their minds as to who was to be forgiven or not. But that's not what's going on here. You see, John tells us that Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on them, and he gave them a mission. And that mission was to take the gospel, the gospel and the word of God. And who is the author of the word of God? But the Holy Spirit. They are to take the Holy Spirit gospel to the world. And they are to declare that forgiveness is found only in believing in Jesus. If you believe... Then you are forgiven. But if you don't believe, then they have the authority to tell you your sins are not forgiven. If you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are not forgiven. And the gospel is good news, but it's exclusive good news. That's why I'm here this morning. Jesus must rise because He has commissioned His church to bring the glorious news that there is someone to whom you can go. You can go to Jesus. If you go to Jesus, you will have the forgiveness of sins. But by the authority given to the church by Jesus Christ, I tell you, if you do not believe in Jesus, if you have had enough of Jesus, if you don't want Jesus, then your sins will never be forgiven you. Because you'll only find forgiveness in Jesus. There's no place else to go. No other 12-step program. No other philosophy. No other religion. Only Jesus has risen from the dead. Only Jesus can pronounce peace. We must go to him. And we must bring others to him. Then there is a final scene in verses 24 through the end of the chapter. Again, our Lord has arranged events in his providence. Thomas, we are told, was not there when Jesus appeared to the disciples. And so, doubting Thomas is born. The other disciples tell Thomas that they have seen the Lord. We see this in verse 25. And Thomas uses language here. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, I don't think what's happening here is Thomas expects them to bring Jesus in front of him so he could poke Jesus' hands. If I can make a very free translation... What Thomas is saying is, y'all are nuts. I don't believe you at all. The only way I could possibly believe is if Jesus was right in front of me and I could see the wounds and I could touch the wounds. People don't come back from the dead, Thomas is saying. Now, before we criticize Thomas, let's remember two things. First, the other disciples were not moved by Mary's testimony at first. Or the evidence of the grave clothes. They had to see Jesus. And then secondly, you stand here today in the same place as, Jesus, as Thomas. You are the recipient of this testimony. What's your reaction to this testimony? What does Thomas really mean here? Why does he say this? I think it will help us to understand and apply it to ourselves if we see that what Thomas is really saying is, I want the kind of evidence that I determine is right. The grave clothes, not enough. The missing body, not enough. The stone rolled away, not enough. The angels speaking, not enough. Mary's testimony, the disciples' testimony, not enough. No, I want God to meet my demands. What this is really about for Thomas is control. And if we're honest, that's often what we demand. It's not evidence we want, it's control. Thomas is surrounded by people that he has known for years as trustworthy. And he has seen that their lives have been transformed by seeing the risen Christ. And yet that's not enough for him. Is that enough for you? Do you need to put your hand in Jesus' side or is it enough for you to be surrounded by people you know, friends and loved ones who testify that Jesus is risen and that he has changed them forevermore? Is that enough for you? Thomas is the most like us of all of the disciples. Mary saw and believed. Peter and John saw and believed. The disciples saw and believed, but Thomas had not seen. And so he would not believe. Thomas had not experienced Jesus, and so he would not believe. And so Jesus comes to Thomas. He challenges Thomas's desire for control, and he tells Thomas to believe. And do you see Thomas's response in verse 28? It goes beyond anything that the others have said. My Lord and my God. He sees that Jesus is not only risen from the dead, but that he is God himself. And Jesus tells him that those are blessed who have not seen and believed. That's you and me, friends. We have not seen the risen Christ. But we are called to believe. John tells you that you must believe. The evidence is here. Jesus must rise so that he can dispel doubts. John tells us that's why he wrote this book. In verse 31, These are written... That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Will you believe today? If you are here today because of your family, or tradition, or you don't even know why you're here. The risen Christ calls on you to believe. He has defeated death. And he is calling you by name. He has commissioned his church right now, this very morning, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins by faith in Jesus. Put away your doubts and believe. Come to Jesus and have life in his name. And if you come here today believing, but weary or afraid or angry at the world, Jesus has a word for you. The risen savior is king. There is no need to fear for he knows your name. He has called you and he loves you. He loves you enough to have died for you. Don't grow weary. The mission Jesus has given you is not finished yet. It will not be finished until every single one of his children have been brought to him. Not one will be left behind. Not one will be missing. Jesus has sent you. Bring the gospel of forgiveness. And don't be angry. There is so much to be angry about today. Our world is a world of anger. But Jesus brings you peace. The world does not need your anger. It needs Jesus. Tell them about your Jesus. Tell them about the peace that he brings. Jesus must rise because his mission and his ministry demand it. He came to die. And he came to live. He came that you might have life in his name. What a glorious message this day and every day. Let's pray.